Hey guys, what is up? Welcome back to Flourishing with PTSD, a podcast designed to help normalize conversations around mental health, specifically in the context of PTSD, also known as post-traumatic stress disorder. If this is your first time tuning in for an episode, I would like to personally welcome you. If you are a regular listener or someone who occasionally pops in for an episode here and there, welcome to you as well. My name is Amanda and I am the host. This is as good a time as any for me to let you know that I am not a medical professional in any capacity. I am not a doctor. I am not a therapist. I am, however, a survivor with my fair share of trauma, and that's why I'm here, because so many of us are survivors of trauma, and we deserve to have a community where we can learn from each other and just feel less alone in the thick of it. I will also go ahead and put a trigger warning on today's episode, so make sure to check in with yourself and just see how you're doing before continuing on, but I'm here to tell you today's going to be a really great episode. Um, And I'm super excited for today's episode because today I am joined by a guest who can really help give some credible background on PTSD and help all of us listening to better understand some of the hurdles that come with PTSD from a professional perspective. I am joined today by the incredible and accomplished Dr. Pamela Hall. Dr. Pam started her graduate training in mental health in 1981, right after PTSD entered the diagnostic manual. She provided treatment before research even started and while it was happening. And, you know, people affected by trauma taught her how to be helpful. There were no manuals. She read the books and followed the research, but Mostly, she listened to the people, and over time, she learned that trauma exposure has a unique impact on whether or not people could feel safe in their own skin. So turning to a therapist, for example, is a pretty big hurdle. And through collaborative, respectful conversations about what was helpful and what wasn't helpful, people started getting better, meaning that they overcame these embedded fears and they found peace. So now she's written a book about what she's learned, PTSD Unplugged, and it translates the technical information about PTSD into words that have resonated with thousands of veterans over the past 10 years. And she's here with us today to share what she has learned. And, you know, getting better from PTSD is hard, but living with PTSD is harder. Dr. Pam, thank you so much for being with me today here and to talk about PTSD and offer your professional outlook on things. I couldn't be more excited to have you here. Are you Thanks, excited? Amanda. I appreciate you bringing, this up, bringing me on and giving me a chance to talk about this thing that's so near and dear to my heart. Um, just seeing people uh, struggling to have happiness um, because of stuff's going on in their head. I, I, I'm committed to making PTSD commonly spoken about and understood and clearing up some of the mysteries that and maybe misunderstandings that you know occur um when something begins to become popular in you know in culture and so uh thanks for having me on and happy to be here awesome thank you dr pam and um so first of all before we get into too many things um and before i ask you the questions that are uh that i have prepared for you i just want to know um what brought you into this line of work? What what inspired you to do the work that you do today? Oh, it's a great question. So, you know, um, when I first finished my degree in uh, 1983 is when I finished my degree, I um, began working actually where I could 
work and find a job, I was very interested in how the brain works um, in terms of uh, Alzheimer's disease, stroke, um, different kinds of head injuries, and uh, the changes that happen with people in those circumstances, and what, if any, kind of recovery they could have from these kind of head injuries. And in the course of doing that, I started seeing uh, war veterans with head injuries, as well as first responders and um, started seeing what looked like it could be this PTSD, which was in a way new and in a way very old. So we, you know, I experienced PTSD and family members returning from Vietnam. And then here we have this label for it. So when I, when I moved into sort of the next 10 years of my life, I was working in a um, private practice setting um, in the 90s, which was when our culture began to accept and understand that hostile home environments when we're kids have such an effect on our ability to uh, have good lives as adults. And so I was part of that early um, practice of helping people overcome childhood trauma and uh, also at that same time uh, sexual assault uh, became something that people were seeking recovery resources for. It was all so new to us, um, especially as women, to start having a voice in uh, what's going on in our personal lives. Um, in 1994, when I was 35 years old, it became illegal for the first time in the United States to harm your family members. Mm. Like before that, it wasn't illegal to harm your family members. So you just start talking to people and you start seeing them um, getting better, feeling empowered, and that uh, witnessing those improvements that people were able to make for their lives has just propelled me forward. So um, you say the 90s and you begin to realize how old you are because that was 25 <laughs> years ago. Um, you know, but in these 25 years, I've been um, able to expand to uh, sort of combine my knowledge of the brain and how it works and why it works the way it does with what's happening when people are exposed to violence and um, so that the integration of those two interests of mine has brought me to where I am now. In the last 10 years, I've worked predominantly with veterans, um, not because PTSD only happens in veterans, but because this is a unique subpopulation that um, deserves full attention. And uh, so I've been working with veterans um, for the last 10 years. Um, been my honor to do so. Wow. Well, thank you for all that you've done for that population. And what a cool testament it is to say that you've kind of been there on the bookends of you know, of PTSD so far, you know, starting when it was really this thing that this phenomenon that we didn't really understand, but, you know, we were seeing, you know, the symptomology, but you know, what's a name and then we have a name and then we add it to the DSM and then treatment evolves. And then we realize, you know, PTSD isn't just from combat. It's in, it can be domestic. It can be right in our homes. It can be, 
you know, it can happen to anybody. And I think that that's such a cool thing from a professional perspective of being able to really witness that journey. That just, that must've been amazing. Well, you know, when you're in the trenches, you don't think of it that way. You just hope <laughs> you're doing the right things. And, um, you know, you, you learn things along the way. So um, I've learned a lot from the people I've talked to. Um, and I, one of the main things I've learned is to have open collaboration. So people know what you're thinking, why you're thinking it, why you think it could be helpful um, to have certain conversations. And uh, so it's just been, well, I've, I love my job. So I, I, you know, they say, if you love your job, you never work a day in your life. So um, I think that's true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. So Dr. Pam, I have some questions for you that um, I hope you can kind of bring your professional expertise into, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Um, you know, and uh, so this podcast, you know, it's, it's the goal of it is to normalize conversations around mental health in the context of trauma and PTSD. Um, and I think that one thing that we can agree on is that trauma can change the brain, right? It's, it's very much like an injury that changes the physical state of the body. You know, trauma changes the brain. Could you give listeners and myself a bit of background on what, what's happening to the brain as a result of, of trauma? You know, I think we can feel it. I think we've all experienced a moment in time when suddenly something's going on and, and we have to move into action mode. Um, maybe we're in a state of alarm because it's dangerous. We've all experienced danger, whether that's in our cars on the freeway or on the streets in terms of criminal activity or maybe in the home where sadly there's too much violence. And so I think uh, all of us have experienced that moment in time when our brains suddenly move into a state of action or alarm. And, you know, most people have heard this phrase, uh, fight or flight. Um, well, over the years, we're also including the word freeze. And I'm even learning now from a new podcast I just heard today, um, the word faint which is true too. So what happens to our brains? Our brains move into action mode. So there are a couple of parts in our brains that are involved. Um, the amygdala is involved. It's a little acorn size uh, sensory receptor in the brain uh, that then tells the rest of our brain what's going on. In a moment of, of violence or danger, our amygdala fires up red hot activates the left side of our brain and down into our you know, vagus nerve, I think mm. it's called, um, where we, where our bodies go into action mode. So the adrenaline rushes and our senses become more acute. Uh, we have the energy to do things. Uh, if the situation is such that we can fight back, we fight back. If the situation is such we gotta run away, we've got the energy to run away. Some situations are overwhelming. So that part of our body actually makes us freeze or stop like, like any, if you will, animal might do to try to hide or um, evade the danger by staying 
incredibly still. And so there's our brain working overtime to keep us safe. And then we survive. And then at least a third of the time, our brain gets caught in a cycle of replaying that event. Why this happens, we don't know. But what we do know is that without intervention, that cycling can go on for a long time. And it makes us be defensive in situations that other people are finding safe. And so we look odd and that's where we started noticing the PTSD, right? So um, PTSD is this process where a moment in time gets frozen in time. Uh, we call that moment in our, in our memory trauma memory. Uh, most people know about short-term memory, long-term memory. Uh, we know so much just as a, as a general culture anymore about these things. We didn't talk like this when I was young. And so I'm really glad we're talking like this now and you have this podcast going so we can just talk about. So there are these different kinds of memory, long-term, short-term, immediate memory. But in the case of trauma memory, we have a very different kind of memory that is vivid, it's full of the sights, sounds, smells, body feelings, emotions that were occurring at the moment that we were exposed to that violence. And then our response to that, our brain's response to that is to go back into that state of alarm and uh, protect ourselves. So if we smell something, see something, feel something that's like what happened at that moment in time, it can pop that memory open and we're reliving the whole experience again. And this can go on indefinitely if we don't do something to retrain the brain. Uh, to get out of that alarm response that's no longer necessary, um, but still happens. It can happen to any of us, doesn't matter who we are. Yeah, wow, that was a really great explanation. And so I know that there's also kind of a, um, and we'll talk about this in a, in a moment too, but, you know, there's a lot of debate out there about, you know, the fight or flight and a lot of survivors, I know specifically in um, like sexual assault, they, they say, oh, you know, I should have I should have fought. I should have run. I should have done this. And they kind of victim blame themselves or, you know, God forbid, um, someone that they have disclosed to victim blames them um, just to clear things up. Would you say that this fight or flight response is voluntary or is it less than voluntary? Right. Uh, in, you know, a lot of ways, it's very much below the level of choice um, in the sense that we're really we've really moved into reaction mode because the situation is incredibly outrageous. Yeah. And to blame yourself for not knowing what to do in a moment of outrageous harm. Well, that just adds insult to injury. It, it's certainly not something that you know, I would do, but there is a lot of that that goes on. Um, we, and we do it to ourselves too, because we want to survive. We want to think of ourselves as powerful enough to survive. And yet some circumstances are simply outrageous. 
Um, I don't know if that's enough to say. I want to say anything I can to stop the shaming that goes on um, because these circumstances that create this trauma response are horrible, horrifying. These incredibly strong words um, that we try not to use to so that we don't like overemphasize things, but uh, but really we should not minimize in any way how dangerous these events were. If these events were not dangerous, we would not be experiencing trauma memory. And so God, here everything, all my heart goes out to people who survive these moments um, and then have to cope with this replaying of these outrageous moments over and over again. Yeah. Thank you for, for clarifying that. Um, so for those who are impacted by trauma and PTSD, particularly, you know, there is a stigma that is felt, meaning that there's a shame experienced when someone tries to battle with the realities that their trauma has left them with. So, you know, that you talk about like that replaying or maybe they're struggling with nightmares or really just kind of feeling like a fish out of water when everyone else seems to be quote unquote normal, you know, what is normal, but you know what I mean? Um, and maybe there's this perception that other people are judging them for what they're dealing with in your professional career. What are some of the barriers or obstacles that you believe have resulted from this kind of stigma? I think one of the biggest barriers in our culture right now is that um, everybody expects everybody to be recovered, Mm. not in recovery. So the, the kind of intense emotions or the, the fear response, the self-protective responses um, in the, when the trauma memory replays are every bit as below the level of choice as it was at the time of the original event until we start figuring out how to recover. But that's the next question, maybe. So the barrier that I see there is that if you've not experienced trauma memory, you don't understand how this is for people. And so you think of their past in the same way that you think of your past. I've had tough things. You know, I'll talk about me for a second. I've had tough things in my life. I have not relived those things. I've not had a trauma exposure like this. And so for me, even going into the field, I have thought, okay, well, we're just going to talk these things out and uh, be able to move forward and put this behind you. And what I saw over time, uh, let's say in the 80s and 90s and going into the early 2000s, as the books started being written, um, I saw people, well, we would be having conversations about the most ordinary things and they would suddenly become alarmed um, and feel as though they had to protect themselves. And so the barrier there would be if I didn't recognize that they were in another state of brain activity, it's one way to think about it, another state of emotional responding um, something that wasn't isn't what I have experienced. So my 
I, I'm called upon to be empathetic and understanding and not judge somebody as weak or incapable because it didn't matter what we were talking about. Trauma memory would intrude. So let's figure out how to deal with trauma memory now. But it is a complete barrier in a social setting, sometimes in a re- often in a relationship setting, when trauma memory gets reactivated and the other person or people involved don't understand that something very difficult, very real is going on in the heart and the mind of the person they're standing in front of. So that is a big barrier. It's just a, it's such a different thing to have trauma memory and be dealing with trauma memory. Hmm. So that would be one. Um, Do you want a couple more barriers? Yeah, shout them out. Yes. All right. All right. So the second barrier, I'll I'll probably say in a little shorter period of time, there's a whole bunch of us on this planet who don't think before we act. Mm. These are the folks, and, and that's not to be negative or judgmental. I'm so glad for these people because they see a problem, they run toward it. They see danger, they run toward it. They help us. Um, These are our first responders, folks going into combat who are following orders and are moving toward the trouble. And they're skilled and prepared to handle the trouble in front of them. Um, And yet, and, and they do so. And their courage and strength, you know, rule the day or doesn't. You know, because horrible events are horrible events. And sometimes out of our control, we can't stop what's happening. But in either case, if we were able to rescue somebody or not rescue somebody, if you're the kind of person who runs toward danger, the last thing you're going to do is ask yourself, how does this make me feel? Mm -hmm. You're just going to go toward it and do it. So a barrier for that kind of person is when a week or a month, or a year later, they can't get it off their mind. And in a way, they feel betrayed by themselves. I And say things to themselves like, I thought I was strong enough to handle this. I thought I was brave enough to, to not be bothered later. You know, I thought I could um, manage the stress of my job as a cop or a fireman or fire person, fire person, fireman. We don't have a good word for that now. I don't anyways. But, you know, somebody who's running toward helping others. I was just talking with my best friend earlier today, and she she is a person who does this, not in a professional capacity, but in her personal life. And she says that she sees herself like a ninja warrior. <laughs> if something has happened, somebody's in trouble on the side of the road, she will run toward that. She will stop her car, pull over and help. And then later is troubled by what she has seen. And and she's just a perfect example of a person who is tough enough to do the job and then feels somewhat betrayed by their own heart and mind when they don't feel tough enough to handle the memory. So that's a barrier. Um, the barrier being, what do I do now? Yeah. As a person in that capacity, they don't talk about their feelings. Anything more complicated than love or 
anger is just not what they want to spend their time thinking about. So here they are with now this complex assortment of responses. And um, again, they feel somewhat betrayed uh, by themselves and they don't want to tell anybody uh, because they want to keep doing the job. They want to keep pushing themselves to overcome. And uh, so just speaking up Mm -hmm. can be a barrier. So almost like, so the stigma enables this kind of like hushed conversation to where we don't even know where to find these resources when we need them, when you've gone through a trauma. And then on top of that, adding into the mix a stigma on like as if having feelings about something makes you less of a person or weak. And that's not in the same ballpark as courageous. That baffles me a bit. It's a big disconnect for me too. But then as I've talked with people, you have to hear how they break it down. And I think a main thing that psychologists do, psychotherapists, counselors do, is, you know, we break down the sort of basic reactions that people have into their smaller parts. It's, it's a lot of hard work, actually. It's hard work for people to do. Um, But that's what we help people to do so that they can see and feel and experience this below the level of choice reactivity, that sense that, oh, yeah, I'm not really choosing to react this way. I'm, you know, for, for brain reasons, actually, just responding, reacting. And so now they get to see, oh, this is my brain responding differently and so then this this kind of breaking it down helps them to see that what they're doing is training their brain to respond differently to what's what your brain is holding um and so that we can then release it and it's a long process so much easier to say than to do <laughs> oh for sure always yeah um thank you for sharing that Um, so then how do you think we can reach people out there who are struggling with the weight of the stigma and don't believe that they can seek the help for what they're dealing with? We're in such a different time right now. It's exciting for me to see because there are people talking about this everywhere. So in a way, I think that more people understand that they're dealing with post-trauma symptoms than people in the past have understood that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So um, so first of all, with this label, no matter, you know, it's not the greatest label, but it is a label. So we can say to ourselves, oh, I must be having these reactions because of what happened. Um, so I guess first I would say, how do you help people? You help people know that this is a normal thing. It's as normal to have post-trauma response as it is to have a fever when you have the flu. Mm. I like how yeah. you put that. Yeah. So if we, if we can keep this normalizing process going, thanks, Manda, for what you're doing. You know, this open conversation about how we respond to stuff. But I think at a deeper level, 
what we can do to reach out to people is provide stories of recovery. Mm. Um, if you don't know you can get better from something, you're not going to want to try. Or you're not going to know that you could try. Boy, all of a sudden I'm sort of moved by this idea. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I just got a little choked up. Yeah, me so, too. Me too. <laughs> I know. Because there's such a you know, there's such a another stigma is that if you have PTSD, you can't get better from it. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I wouldn't still be working with PTSD 35 years later if people didn't get better from it. In fact, I like to tell a little joke, a little rabbit hole joke, that I kept working with PTSD, but I stopped doing couple counseling because I'm not sure people get better from that. <laughs> <laughs> that just, that's really, it's like one of my, yeah. It is a true thing for me. I know that there are other counselors, psychologists and whatnot who do great work in couple counseling. <laughs> for me, I stuck with post-traumatic stress um, because I can see the growth that happens after that and I can help facilitate that growth. But folks have to hear from, I actually wrote this down, say it right. They have to hear from others about how reaching out can help them achieve their goals. You know, so what is your goal? There are people who can't go to their kids' softball games because it's too anxiety-provoking to be in a group of people. Dads who want to be the dad they want to be. They want to coach their kids, but their, but their post-trauma reaction makes it such that groups of people, open spaces, feels dangerous to them. So they're not able to focus on coaching their kids or remain calm. The irritability rises up. And so a goal that I've heard a lot of men say is that they want to be the dad they want to be. Hmm. So we can reach out to people by saying, hey, a little bit of conversation, a lot of conversation. It takes longer than you want it to take, but you can reach that goal where you are the father you want to be for men and women they want intimacy in their relationships if there's been an assault in the past it compromises your ability to be calm open and trusting in relationships and so they're inhibited from having close personal relationships so if we can help them to hear how reaching out has helped other people achieve that goal, maybe they'll be a little more motivated. Um, right now, the message is, or up until now, the message has been, well, sure, you got PTSD, but don't bother going to counseling because nobody really gets better. Mm -hmm. Or here's a fistful of medication that might help keep you under control. Mm -hmm. Well, it really doesn't help that way. Medication doesn't really help that way. In the long term, you don't want to take a fistful of medication the rest of your life. Our research has actually shown us that there are certain counseling techniques um, that can help break up trauma memory, retrain the brain to, to respond differently, get your life back, be able to experience the world around you in, for what it is, 
not for the moment that happened in the past, but for what it is today. Um, so we, we need to be communicating that message over and over again, that you can get better from PTSD. And then I think we might have more people reaching out. Yeah, I think you're so right on that. And I mean, I admit, even in, you know, I've been deep diving into the advocacy side of things for, gosh, I think almost a little over two years now and, you know, doing my own therapy. And, you know, I think that that's something that we forget to articulate. And I'm not as familiar in hearing that either is that, you know, you, you can get better. Like, and, you know, if you like, for example, for myself, you know, um, when I've been in therapy, it's like, sometimes I forget to look back and be like, oh my gosh, look at how far I've come, you know? And, um, and so I think you're absolutely right that more people telling their stories and saying some of these really like these power words of, you know, recovery. Yes. It's, is it possible? Yes. You can go on to continue recovering and you're not going to be stuck in the same place. And I think that that's what a lot of survivors feel is just stuck. And as long as you can keep moving forward, that's that's what we need people to hear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So important to unpack what it means that you're stuck. You know, when if you experience the same patterns over and over again. In fact, it often takes people. Well, let's just take combat vets for a sec, because I know a lot of their trends from the work that I've been doing. It will take a combat veteran, male or female, ten years post their combat deployment to reach out for help. Oh gosh. It's not as if it hasn't been troubling up to that point, but it almost takes that amount of time to try what you can, to try to beat the demon by yourself, to, you know, deal with that sense of self-betrayal that you have, that you can't get your life under control. Um, but then you keep seeing the same patterns happen over and over again, and you're the common denominator. So, you know, uh, time to look at myself. And when they come in and begin reporting symptoms, it's usually because they have basic goals. I want to be a better spouse. I want to be a better parent. I want to be a better worker, coworker. I want to finish this degree, my memory problems, my distractibility from trauma memory has kept me from achieving my vocational goals. Um, And they begin seeing that, you know, they're caught in a pattern where they're not able to get to where they want to be. And uh, so then they come in and start talking. Um, Wow. 10 years. So, yeah. 10 years. That is a catastrophically large number a long time um so I mean speaking of that so like when someone does get the courage to seek treatment and they consult with you and they tell you that they have these symptoms of post-traumatic stress even if they don't know that word specifically but you know maybe at this point in time they don't really have the vocabulary when they get to this point what do you do now educate 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 yeah yeah, that's why that's why I wrote the book. So those in these here's so I'm going to say ten years again, but in my ten years of working with veterans and doing conducting six thousand examinations, more than half of them under the age of forty. So part of the internet generation, if you will, 
um, I started asking them, well, have you Googled PTSD? You know, have you done a internet search about treatment for PTSD, like we might for a wart or, mm. you know, something else that's going on, a fever or a other, you know, set of symptoms. And, you know, by and large, they said, no, they hadn't. And so I started educating about like the definition of PTSD or trauma memory um, concepts, like uh, we were saying before. It might not be what people want to learn when they go to counseling. They kind of want counselors to have a pretty magic, you know, like a magic wand. I like to tell people I missed that class. I didn't, I wasn't there when they handed out the magic wands. Um, so sorry, it just takes longer than that. Um, but you, so you have to, you have to just let people know what's common to experience in a counseling kind of situation and also in their own symptoms. So you begin to track with them over time. In fact, there's a wonderful app that the VA put out, but anybody can download it called PTSD Coach. Um, and in that app, you can start tracking your symptoms. Wow. So you can track what's making you feel more alarmed. What just happened? You can track what's causing a nightmare. So in the app, you record, I had a nightmare tonight. And this is what happened during the day. And the app starts accumulating information about what's triggering you. So triggering is a word that we have used for a while in this business. Um, and what we mean by that is that there is a sight, a sound, a smell, an experience you're having that's activating your trauma memory. So in my personal work, I don't use the word trigger as much mm -hmm. as I use the word activator um, because I think it starts communicating the information that people need to know. That what is happening around you is activating an old a memory. I, so I had to correct myself. It's not an old memory. It's a recurring memory that is vivid and horrifying. And so people begin to pick up the words. I was activated today. You know, I'll ask them, how often do you have nightmares? They'll say a couple, three times a week. I'll say, well, what activated you? What else was going on? And so starting to learn some of the language that speaks to the brain changes that have gone on starts helping people see that what we're doing is training the brain. So train the brain, retrain the brain to behave, to respond differently to the senses, to the environment around you. So, yeah. Do you think that it's possible? I know like for a whole because I know that I feel like when I reflect on my own therapy journey and when I think about the things that have activated me for example um there are things that used to bother me that and like maybe activate me whereas like now they don't perhaps do you believe that that is accessible to everyone do you think that we like these you know triggers or activation things can be um can kind of go extinct? Do you think that that's possible? I think it is really worth a try. Mm -hmm. So, um, and 
as I, you know, as I have gone through the work, um, there's sure there are things that make it harder to recover. Um, we can, we could talk about that. If you have a head injury, so your brain is already compromised by a head injury. It is very difficult to retrain an injured, a physically injured brain. It is not as difficult to retrain a psychologically injured brain. Mm. Okay. Maybe I'll just leave that as, you know, yeah. that's, that's the tweet, as they say. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's the takeaway. I like it. I like it. Yeah. 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 So we have about 20 minutes left. So um, I know that like when we were talking in, in preparation for this episode, we were talking about um, narrative therapy as a method that you like to use in your practice. And I actually wanted to um, incorporate a little quick anecdote in here because I think this might add to the conversation as well is so when I first started therapy, I was 17 and I, I'm pretty sure that my therapist started using this method with me. Um, but there came a part, and I would love for you to just touch on this because I think it's not just me. Um, there came a part where, you know, she had me kind of write everything out, what happened. And at the end, you know, I had a memory issue, like, um, you know, dissociated, can't quite place everything there. I had no idea that that was a phenomenon. I didn't know that the brain had the power to block things out like that necessarily um and so I remember when it came to the end like to this day I don't remember everything but I made something up because I didn't want her to think I was crazy like of course she would like of course I should remember that like why wouldn't I you know and so I'm excited to hear you talk about narrative therapy what it is and why it's effective and you know how this plays into the memory aspect because um yeah, I definitely, I have a personal stake in it. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say on it. Well, remembering that I wasn't, I didn't start doing this work. I started doing this work before the evidence-based treatments were described. And so um, what I found is that it was important how people told their stories. And if there's just like a thumbnail about what is narrative therapy, that's that's the thumbnail. It's important how we tell the stories. It's important what we leave in, what we leave out. It's important what we remember, and it's important the detail we don't remember. And when we have horrible memories, horrible events from the past, we cope with them by glossing over them, avoiding them, um, disconnecting from them if we can. I've heard any number of people say they shoved that event in a file cabinet and I'm like, so how's that working for you? And they're like, yeah, the file cabinet is like a sewer right now with all kinds of stuff, you know, flowing out of it. So it is not, we're not really capable of sticking horrible things into a file cabinet and having them not impact us in some ways. So, so I, I found that helping people tell their story, um, all of their story, uh, was healing. And this was in the 10 years before we had evidence-based counseling. Mm -hmm. 
I did a lot of reading in narrative therapy because it helped me understand why this was helping. Combining narrative therapy with the whole brain behavior relationship. So as we tell our stories, our brains are working. We're having, um, we're, we're strengthening some neurons, we're neglecting other neurons, you know, if you will, we're, we're strengthening some reactions. Um, what we try to do in a narrative therapy approach is strengthen a, the calming brain pattern with alarming events so that we can look back on, so we can begin to look back on alarming events rather than live in them. And just saying those words on purpose over and over again, and having people say those words too. There would be times when people would tell parts of their story of trauma, and we would end with what are now called grounding techniques. And I would say, so, but hey, notice, notice that you're in this room, that you're sitting on that sofa, that it's a safe place and start strengthening the brain's ability to notice what's going on around you while at the same time you're aware of or talking about the troubling moments from the past. That actually initiates a process in our brain of creating a long-term memory. And so we're strengthening our brain's capacity to push trauma memory into long-term memory. And then long-term memory actually does fade Mm -hmm. over time. We don't relive trauma memory. We'll look back on something and say, gosh, that was really a sad time. And we might feel some sadness when we look back, but we don't re-experience the same sadness we felt at the time that it was occurring. Think about if you've been in a relationship breakup, very powerfully, very powerful emotionally while it's happening. And then over time, that powerful emotion begins to diminish because that's how we heal. That's how we grieve. Grieving is part of trauma recovery. So it's that process of telling your story with real-time experiences and feelings and noticing, and this is what we call grounding, so that we're grounding. I think I also use the word anchoring because so much of this likes to suck us into a dark black hole that what we don't, we need more than grounding. We need an anchor actually. So just using powerful words to help the brain do what it wants to do which is recover. So, um, so, so narrative therapy allows a person to be able to tell the story of their whole life without prior events pulling them back, uh, you know, like that black hole. Yeah. Yeah. Very fascinating. Very fascinating. Um, Okay. And then one of the last questions I have for you, um, focusing on the healing aspect of things. So we just talked about narrative therapy and the, the work that's being put in and, you know, a method that, you know, we can work on with, um, people who have PTSD, but, um, why does healing, 
look the way it does? Why is it so difficult? Because we're changing the way our brain is working. Because we're retraining the brain. Um, Gee, it would be sure nice if I could run a marathon today. <laughs> so, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and I'm going to run a marathon. I was lucky to do a 5K walk in an hour and six minutes a couple of weeks ago. I could do it faster, but we kind of, the three of us who were walking kind of stopped to chat for a minute and I, or slowed our walk because we were having a good conversation. And, and I said, come on, let's speed this up. I want to get this. I want, I want to meet that goal of less than an hour. Um, well, I didn't, but maybe the next time I'm going to leave them behind so I can just power walk and. We'll see if I exhaust myself. So see that training. Um, we have to do the same thing with our brains. We, one, somebody once asked me, what was the biggest mistake we made early on in the treatment of PTSD? I thought it was, that was a great question, especially because I have an answer. Mm. And, and the answer is we expected insight to create rapid recovery. So if you're dealing with something like a conflict with a person at work, and it doesn't have anything to do with trauma, um, but just like a conflict, um, you know, somebody keeps walking by your desk and talking to you, but you don't want them to do that anymore. How are you going to address that? Um, we can insightfully say, oh, I just need to be, more assertive and then we can learn assertive techniques and we can practice those and they might we might feel nervous but then we say insightfully oh well i'm practicing a new technique and then we have courage and strength to move forward well in why does healing look the way it does why is it so difficult um because here you are amanda with this insight that these trauma experiences from your past are affecting you but your brain is still responding to the memory of that trauma and needs to be retrained. My brain needs to be retrained. The insight, the aha, aha, it's trauma that's bothering me. Does not like remarkably alter the way the brain is because the brain's full of neurochemistry, neurons, um, brain tissue parts that get used to behaving a certain way. And we have to retrain those the same way we have to retrain our muscles if we want to do something else than what we typically do, which I typically sit for a living. So <laughs> I, if I have, want to do anything physical, I have to train myself to do that. I have to work with my muscles to respond differently. Proprioception is the fancy neurology word for that um and the fancy neurology word for uh, retraining our brain in terms of trauma memory well i'm not exactly sure we have a really great word for that it just takes a long time because we're resetting the wiring and the switching in our brain if you will yeah so i guess that makes sense that you know we can't just suddenly wake up and recover from trauma there's we're, we're working on a marathon. <laughs> it, is, it is a marathon. And honestly, it's just like a lifelong, okay, these things happened in the past. They were horrible. They happened in the past. 
it's a lifelong process of living with that as part of our story. Yeah. And working with ourselves to not shame ourselves that that's been part of our story. That's more of a, of a heart issue or a, well, we're just not kind enough to ourselves. And so being around other people who are kind to us and being kind to ourselves, well, that takes time too. These are lifetime efforts that we make. You can, it takes practice. It takes practice, lots of practice. Very much so. I can attest to that myself as well. Yeah. Well, and then continuing to live along the way. We, you have to live while you're in recovery. So yes. you have to have, you don't have to, you know, that's a funny way to say that. But well, I'll just say it that way. You have to have friends. Yeah. You You have to have people in your life who are warm towards you, who know your whole story and don't judge you. So you have people to practice with that, you know, you're living a life where you can have joy and happiness. And if there's uh, one thing that I would want people out there to know, it's that they should find things that make them happy along the way. Find things that make you happy. I love to swim. I have a pool. I'm lucky. That's one thing that makes me happy. I have two children talking to them makes me happy. If I'm having a down day, I reach out to my sons and they cheer me up. It's important to have happy things going on in our lives. They don't have to cost anything. They just have to make us happy. Wow. Dr. Pam, you are amazing and an inspiration. And I'm so glad that you could be here today to talk with us, the Flourishing with PTSD community. I am truly honored. Um, where can we find you on social media? And do you have a website? Where can we find a copy of your book? Give us the lowdown. So the fun thing is, is this phrase PTSD unplugged seems not to be being used by anyone else. So that was part of our research. So if you just put that in your search engine, you'll find us. Um, we have a website. Um, I have a blog, um, in my blog, I'm continuing to unpack some of these concepts like what we've talked about. Um, I am on Twitter at Pamela Hall PhD. Yep, at <laughs> Pamela Hall PhD. <laughs> we are on Instagram. I am on Instagram at the same, at Pamela Hall PhD. And uh, PTSD Unplugged is on Instagram and Facebook. Awesome. So that's where we are now. Great. Awesome. Yeah, you, you can find our book at Barnes and Noble. Um, you can find it at Apple Books, at Smashwords by ebook. I also want to say if there are any veterans listening who are coping with this or family members of veterans coping with the, with these issues, you can send us an email at ptsd at gmail.com. We have a bunch of donated books, books that were donated by a Twitch channel, actually my son's Twitch channel at super cool. (laughs) And he had me on his Twitch channel early in the process of launching the book. 
and his Twitch community raised $1,100 for us to buy books for veterans, and we're still passing them out. So limited supply, but we still have some left. And we'd love to send anyone a copy who's coping with this from a military perspective, not just combat, but also sexual trauma during service. There's also so many injuries, trauma injury that occurs because of the dangerousness of uh, military service uh, from working on a flight deck to being in live ammunition trainings uh, to doing other kinds of operations. Um, The Coast Guard is one of our branches. They do rescue and recovery. So if you have any if you have any listeners, if there are any listeners out there who are veterans, ptsdunplugged at gmail.com. Really, anybody can reach out to us there. But we got a book for you, and we're happy to mail it out to you. Wow, that is incredible. Well, thank you guys all for joining Dr. Pam and I for this conversation. Every time I get the honor of meeting someone new, it just fills me with a refreshed sense of hope and honestly, some sanity, (laughs) you know, uh, this journey can make you easily feel like you're going crazy. So this is a good anchor for me or a good grounding technique for me really. And, uh, thank you, Dr. Pam, for being here with me today and just sharing your journey as well as your knowledge and expertise. And I'm so grateful that you felt good about coming onto the show and trusting my platform and, Thank you all again for being here and let's keep ending the stigma around the struggles with mental health one conversation at a time. Bye. Thanks, Amanda. Bye. (laughs)